Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Uh, it's my birthday, John. Is it really? <laughs> it really is, yeah. Oh, let's start <laughs> over. Let's start over. <laughs> okay. Hi, Rebecca, and happy birthday. Hi, John. Thank you. So, what, 32 <laughs> or 33? <laughs> 29 and a half. Anyway, <laughs> from the recount in iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It is Wednesday, June 23rd. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, we're back to the virus. We want to talk about the Delta and Delta Plus variants that are spreading rapidly around the world. And then we want to take a look at a Canadian bill that would force or could force tech companies like Netflix and YouTube to prioritize, there's a great word, prioritize, mm -hmm. Canadian content on their platforms in Canada. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to unpack that one. How about you? Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to get into a new ETF debuting on the market today, sponsored by Engine Number no. 1, the activist fund that... Uh, successfully waged an activist campaign against ExxonMobil. Earlier this year, they're launching an ETF. We'll talk about that. So there's also a great feature in the New York Times today about how the end of pandemic protections could hit the millions of Americans who live in mobile homes especially hard. All right, let's start with two science and tech headlines, and then we'll get to the items. Indeed. First, researchers have provided a detailed description of how a molecular compound produces hydrogen. The compound itself is modeled on a naturally occurring microorganism, but its processes were still a bit of a mystery. Now, the researchers in Germany and Italy understand just how it calls into play things like iron atoms and positively charged protons and negatively charged hydroxide ions. All rather complicated, but one of the possible applications of this research is sustainable production of hydrogen. It is a buzz term in financial markets and one of the Main topics we cover in Investable Universe, FYI. It may be the most abundant chemical substance in the universe, but it doesn't typically exist in pure form in nature and has to be created from compounds that contain it. So hydrogen itself getting a lot of attention as an energy source. John, are you ready for hydrogen-powered cars? Oh, yeah. The enthusiasm of, around hydrogen is remarkable. I mean, Goldman Sachs it is. published that huge paper on the world going hydrogen. Yeah. There's a group out in California, a Stanford group uh, called Rethink X, said that hydrogen was the future. Uh, you've done a lot of this on Investable Universe. Yes. What is your take? So in terms of this uh, of this specific research breakthrough, I mean, obviously, this is not – we're not talking about the investment end of it here, but rather understanding the chemical processes around, around hydrogen. But it's something on which most everyone agrees. According to the Department of Energy, the hydrogen economy could contribute $750 billion each year and add 3.4 million jobs to the U.S. economy. So it's a job creator – there's a lot of interest specifically in energy transition of the commercial trucking fleet in the U.S. Midwest, major project going on there. The argument for hydrogen-powered vehicles, whether it's in a commercial fleet or, you know, regular private vehicle, is that it's, it's, zero, it's zero emission. Think about what it's like to, to breathe in, you know, semi-truck exhaust. I mean, this is, these vehicles basically emit water vapor, so it's, it's clean energy. Yeah. So I think it's, it's coming. Hydrogen is coming. Right. Anyway, we should move on, I think. Okay. Next, when historians look back at this pandemic, mRNA vaccines and the scientists that developed them in record speed will be celebrated as heroes. But the advances in vaccinology keep coming. 
A story in Scientific American details a new vaccine technology based on artificial proteins. Lab tests last year exposed mice to an artificial fragment of COVID-19's famous spike protein. The results showed incredibly effective neutralization. Early clinical trials started in January of this year. Beyond their effectiveness, vaccines based on artificial particles could be cheaper and faster to produce. They also wouldn't need to be refrigerated like today's mRNA vaccines. John, as is often the case with these stories about the future of vaccines, they could also help us to defeat other infectious diseases, from the flu to HIV. Help us understand this scientific breakthrough. It's essentially synthetic biology. What's going on around the country and around the world is a uncoordinated effort to come up with a universal vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. And this is one more step toward that end. Do you think there's going to be a lot of impetus to to push them through the uh, the approval pipeline similar to, to mRNA? I mean, they don't have to be refrigerated. You know, a key advantage on, on mRNA, they could be faster to produce, they could be cheaper to produce. Yeah. What do you think? If you go in, you know, to the CDC or the NIH and say, I think we have something that stops this thing cold and it's more efficient and so on and so forth, Mm-hmm. They're not going to waste a lot of time debating it. They're just going to throw money at you. So if you're if you're in this field of research, money is not an object. Regulatory oversight is extremely forgiving, and you couldn't possibly waste money on this because the consequences of not getting the virus under control are horrific. Yeah. Well, speaking of not getting the virus under control, John, let's stay on the topic of COVID-19 as we move on to the news items. Authorities in India are reporting that Delta Plus, which is yet another mutation of the already concerning Delta variant, could cause a third wave of coronavirus infections in India. Meanwhile, the original Delta variant that first emerged in India could be dominant in the U.S. in just a few weeks, according to the CDC. Delta is one of the so-called variants of concern because it's about 50 percent more transmissible than the current strain most common in the U.S. It could also cause a tougher case of COVID, Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci, said on Tuesday. Finally, a new study finds that, not surprisingly, the variant spreads fastest in places with low vaccination rates. Some states, including Missouri, Arkansas, and Utah, are seeing hospitalizations from COVID trend upward. This notion that COVID is behind us, that we we're reopening and we're back to, you know, the economy is speeding up and mm-hmm. there's this weird unreality. And I understand people want it to be, want to go to restaurants and go to concerts and so on and so forth. But, you know, this thing is, <laughs> we're not anywhere near out of the woods on this. And, mm-hmm. you know, as more variants emerge, uh, the most recent, obviously, Delta Plus, the scarier it gets and that we just have to get the country vaccinated. We have to. If we don't, the consequences are going to be severe. So is the prevalence of this Delta variant here in the U.S. among younger unvaccinated populations, is that is that uh, having any impact on some of the holdover vaccine hesitancy that have been seen in those regions? One hopes, but not yet, right? Yeah. This is sort of active resistance. Like, uh-huh. you know, if I take the vaccine, I'm I'm caving to the man or somebody yeah. is, you know, stepping on, you know, live free or die. I don't have to take the vaccine. And yeah, it's scary. Not out of the woods. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's move along here. All right. And talk about the activist hedge fund engine number one. Yep. 
which is launching an exchange-traded fund, or ETF, this very day, today. Mm -hmm. Like many other ETFs, the fund will invest in the 500 largest publicly traded American companies. However, unlike most ETFs, the engine number one Transform 500 ETF is, quote, purpose-built to create long-term value by driving positive impact through active ownership, unquote. In other words, engine number one will try to influence the direction of the companies it invests in through shareholder elections, just like they did last month when engine number one led a successful campaign to unseat three ExxonMobil board members. Rebecca, I know you think this is a bad idea. Tell us why. I'm concerned about it because I think that there's a potential for unintended consequences, so to speak. And my concern is that we are about to witness the memification of shareholder activism. <laughs> That's what it is, basically, right? I mean, they want these Robinhood traders on their side. There's a lot of demand, particularly in a younger cohort, for yeah. ESG investments, right? I mean, the people yeah. in the wealth management business hear this all the time. Mm-hmm. And engine number one has sort of come up with a product that fits that demand pretty well by saying yeah. that they're there to fight the good fight on climate change. So it's clever well, marketing for sure. You know, the thing is, engine number one, I mean, you know, they got a big bear pelt on their belt, with, you know, with ExxonMobil. The timing was right. The target was right. ExxonMobil actively fought climate change research for many years. They've been traditionally very conservative compared to other energy majors. Engine number one had the support of a major institutional holder, the California Teachers Pension. So that helped. They were able to hold, for example, Vanguard and I think BlackRock to their obligations under right. the Climate 100 convention, you know, that they were signatories to. They said, now you got to put your money where your mouth is here. And so they benefited from that. So that's a success story. And that's like a David versus Goliath type story. Are you going to take that and turn that into an ETF where you're going to try to solicit volume from the Reddit day traders and the Robin Hood crowd? I mean, you're going to hold a tiger by the tail. How's that going to work out for you? Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, if you were on the board, you would say, no, just do the one thing well, right? Let's yeah. not try to be two companies. I don't know. You would think they would want to maybe find some other company, like really do their homework, like develop a track record. They have a track record of one company. Right. There are other ETFs that are organized around, for example, carbon transition. Right. And so you can support that through the ETF. Whether that carbon transition strategy is the result of an activist shareholder campaign is not part of the calculus. It's just that the company is making demonstrable efforts and has a benchmark and is working toward that benchmark and has results in the benchmark. So they go in the ETF and you can buy the ETF if that's what you want to do. This, I think, is like a sideshow that is sloppy, a little sophomoric, and can backfire on them in a big way. Right. All right, we're going to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more news items. Welcome back to News Items. On Monday, the Canadian House of Commons passed a bill that would introduce three major requirements for digital media companies. They need to disclose information about their revenue, provide a portion of their profits to support Canadian content, and increase the visibility of Canadian content on their platforms. Bill C-10 is essentially the digital version of the so-called CanCon law that says Canadian TV broadcasters have to air at least 50% Canadian content between 6 p.m. and midnight. So, John, this measure still has to make it through the Canadian Senate before it becomes law, but if it does, what are the implications? Well, I mean, we start with the fact that 
Canada is forever complaining and whining <laughs> about American cultural imperialism. So yeah. this appeals directly to that sentiment. And, you know, this is obviously not going to end up the way it is now, yeah. but it essentially puts a broadcast model onto yeah. a digital world. And that yeah. that seems utterly unworkable. Does it? How in the world do you build the algorithm that says mm -hmm. 50% of this YouTube content is from Canada? You can with Netflix, obviously. It's much easier to do. But with yeah. the TikToks and YouTube and Facebook, I think it's a lot more complicated. So this impulse is, I'm sure, going to be very familiar to Europeans because European countries are highly, highly invested in controlling what people see and hear on their airwaves because they want to protect the sanctity of their national culture and language and protect from the onslaught of English language culture and this kind of borderless content culture that sort of washes out what whatever they feel is their local identity. But is this Canadian law a blueprint for regulating streaming platforms just like broadcasters? Yes. This legislation, I think, will be watched carefully all around the world mm -hmm. for the, exactly the reasons you described to push back against American cultural imperialism yeah. and now Chinese cultural imperialism. Mm -hmm. You know, it passed through the House of Commons with a fairly comfortable margin. I think it was mm -hmm. roughly 190 to 120. I might have that a little bit wrong. But anyway, comfortably. Yeah. So there's significant political support. Yeah. And I suspect there's significant political support for this all around the world in various countries. Mm -hmm. The place where I think it will be watched most carefully is in Great Britain, where they have Ofcom, which is sort of the broadcast regulator, and it's trying to sort out how it deals with the digital realm. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that, you know, Netflix has done this fantastic thing for foreign producers. You know, if you think about what Netflix has done in terms of bringing foreign content to our attention, whether it's Danish television production or Icelandic murder mysteries, it's astonishing. So a number of these countries want to be careful here because one of the reasons that they now have thriving media is yeah. because Netflix has brought their work to the world's attention. I mean, look, I don't think it's a bad move. Yeah, it's got to be worked out, right? Yeah. Good for you, Canada. If it's good politics in the meantime, that's good too. Yeah, I think they should go for it. Okay. All right, let's move on. So the federal moratorium on eviction that was put into place during the pandemic is ending later this month. This puts renters and homeowners who haven't been able to keep up with their mortgage payments in a precarious spot, as many of them may soon face eviction or foreclosure. Matthew Goldstein wrote an article for The New York Times earlier this week that shows how this problem is particularly pressing for people who own or rent mobile homes. The article estimates that roughly 22 million people across the U.S. live in mobile homes. These are mostly people on fixed incomes, retirees, and the working poor. And within that group, 35% of mobile home owners worked in industries that were destroyed by pandemic restrictions. The issue gets even more complicated when we take into account the unconventional loans these owners take out, called chattel loans, and the fact that these homeowners often have to rent the space from park operators. John, things are looking pretty dark for mobile home residents. I have two questions for you. What, if anything, do you think the Biden administration will do about it? And what should they do? They got to do something. Do something. <laughs> do something, Joe. Do something. Do something, Joe. Don't just sit there. Yes. Well, you can obviously can extend the payment moratorium, which I think has been done twice. But 
you know, in order for the economics of this to work out, the economy does, in fact, have to pick up and, and people get their jobs back and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the immediate thing that if you were the Biden administration and you were thinking politically, mm-hmm. you would, one, attack the banks uh, and financial services companies that are threatening to throw these people on the street. You would go after them specifically and by name mm-hmm. and back them off. And then secondly, you would get yet another round of quote-unquote stimulus money to help these people get through the 90 or 180 days that will at least enable them some chance to get back what was roughly equivalent to their old job. Banks typically will not lend to people who are wanting to buy a mobile home because the loan sizes are too small. Uh, The feds do not guarantee these loans either. So roughly 42% of mobile home owners finance their purchase with this so-called chattel loans, which lack the consumer protection clauses of conventional mortgages. And as you and I have been accustomed to an ultra-low interest rate environment for the past decade plus that has incentivized home ownership and resulted in this kind of runaway, red-hot housing market that we're seeing at the moment, mobile homeowners who take out chattel loans pay 8.6% interest on those loans. Mm. And yet they work in industries that have been more likely to have been hard hit by the pandemic. And this is just another example of how expensive it is to be poor in America, really. Well, we were talking earlier about the content bill in Canada being good politics. This is like the goldmine of politics for Joe Biden. And I'm all but guarantee you that nothing will happen. Okay, so there's no specific verbiage or specific guarantees directed at mobile home owners in the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act, which was signed into law in March. However, it includes $10 billion for a homeowner's assistance fund, which earmarks money for the most vulnerable homeowners facing foreclosure. According to the Times piece, state officials lobbied the Treasury Department to make sure that some of that money goes to residents of mobile homes, and guidance is expected from Treasury sometime soon on how the money can be spent. Although I anticipate that, you know, when we're talking about government timelines, that may not be soon enough for people who are essentially living hand to mouth on the economic knife's edge and facing foreclosure because they've lost their jobs and are about to lose their mobile home. I don't know. It strikes me as unspecific. Yeah, highly unspecific. But anyway, it's it's a big opportunity for the Biden administration. I would guess that the one person who would make this into a very politically productive issue would be Elizabeth Warren. But to date, I haven't seen anybody move on this. According to the Times piece, this market is dominated by five lenders, two of them, 21st Mortgage and and Vanderbilt, which are owned by Clayton Homes, which is in turn owned by Berkshire Hathaway. So there is that ownership relationship, but it's a highly concentrated market. What about something potentially minor but highly impactful i mean just having mobile home loans guaranteed under fannie or freddie i mean why couldn't why couldn't they do that yeah i mean you can give a speech about this you're the president of the united states right you can go yeah. and give a speech or you can do an interview with lester holt yeah. or whatever and mm-hmm. say look this just came to my attention i read this in the new york times this is completely yeah. outrageous and yeah. i'm not going to stand for it we're mm-hmm. going to take regulatory action to make sure these people aren't thrown out of their homes. They shouldn't be because it's not their fault. And by the way, we're going to instruct the Justice Department to take a very long and strong look at these five major companies and see if they are abiding by all of the promises and, and regulations that they have said they would abide by. 
you know, that would like change, yeah. <laughs> you know, in like 12 yeah. minutes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing would change. But I, again, I guarantee you that will not happen. Really? I mean, I, members of the Biden team supposedly listen to news items, read news items. You've got people, very influential people from both sides of the aisle. I'm saying it right now. Do something for the mobile homeowners. <laughs> this has got to become like a platform issue for news items. Like do something, for heaven's sake, for mobile homeowners, you know, or renters for that matter. It's a social, economic, political, and cultural issue because there's a lot of baggage around this notion of the trailer park, of living in a trailer park. And I think it's time to have greater visibility. Honestly, I think it's time to have greater visibility around the trailer park living experience, what it costs in order to try to make ends meet in that kind of an environment and how vulnerable you are when an unexpected event like a global pandemic happens. If I were advising Trump, Mm -hmm. I would say take this as your issue and just hammer the Biden administration on it. I mean, it's not too late to do something before Trump gets hold of this issue. I don't think he will, though. I don't think that this is where Trump would go. But the point is, it's potentially a very good issue because it gets to basic questions of fairness. I agree. And it's time to get Fannie and Freddie involved in this market, you know? Fannie. Fannie. Come on, Fannie. Help us out. All right. That's it. Well, that's it for us today. Yep. Thanks so much for listening to News Items, the podcast. But you should also get the newsletter on Substack. Just Google the words Substack News Items and it'll come right up. Right. For more insights into the global market of things, check out Rebecca's website, investableuniverse.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh. And we'd like to thank the whole team here at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with Jerry Seib, who is the Washington executive editor of the Wall Street Journal.